Hello and welcome to the Perusia podcast. Happy feast of the most holy rosary. We've made it, guys. Um, 29 days since our lady's birthday. What a journey it's been. And we are here at the climax, the finale and the, the great feast, our lady of the rosary. Uh, over 40,000 of you have joined us uh, for this four-week pilgrimage, uh, journeying through the holy rosary. We've had expert speakers from around the world share meditations on each mystery of the rosary and they've led us in a decade of that of that mystery of the rosary so our guest today the president of catholic answers the world's largest apologetic apostle in the world the president of catholic answers is none other than chris check and we're going to talk about the feast today the holy rosary and the battle of lepanto hello chris how are you doing it's good to be with you charbel thank you for joining us um what a great feast it is today it is, a, it is a great feast, and uh, of course, it's a great military feast, you know, and it, it, it calls to our mind that Our Lady, she's, uh, she, 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 she's the solicitous mother, to be sure, but she's also, you know, the fierce fighter who's prefigured there in the Song of Songs, terrible as an army set in array. Amazing. This is, this is what's amazing about her. She's, her humility, she's so humble. We see her as just a simple woman, but the power she has <laughs> my goodness um and i think people have had a new appreciation journeying with us over four weeks to learn more about her but i'm excited about today's show because you've given um talks we actually have your cd set uh on lepanto the battle of, of lepanto here um it's a three cd set um it's so interesting all the details that you go through we also have uh the video that um you recorded in australia uh just over a year ago now a year and a half and are we up to two years now? Oh, no, I think it was about a year ago. It was about, about this time last year. A year, that's right. Time, so much is going on Boy, with time uh, COVID. Goes by. <laughs> but uh, you, you gave a talk on it, and we're finally coming uh, to the end of the edit, and we should be able to release that this week on Perusia on Demand. Um, and so that was very powerful. And the other CD we have of you is um, Put Not Your Trust in Princes, and uh, <laughs> very topical right now <laughs> um, as you go to an election. So we're praying for America. Um, and the leadership there. But uh, Battle of Lepanto, um, I hope everyone's got their croissants ready and we'll know at the end of this why why I say that, <laughs> the croissant. <laughs> um, but uh, Chris, uh, what is, um, what's going on, this feast? How did it originate? You, you've got a bit of a background story to how we got to this point. What is the feast? How did we get the Feast of the Most Holy Rosary? Sure. So in the 16th century, uh, if everyone can imagine the the, the Mediterranean world uh, and the Mediterranean Sea, what Chesterton in the poem calls the inmost sea of all the earth, right? Uh, the the two great powers that are vying for control of the Mediterranean Sea are the city state of Venice, which is a great city state whose economy is dependent very much on seaborne commerce, and uh, and then uh, the ports are the Ottoman Empire, you know. And uh, the Ottoman Empire has been in ascendancy during the, uh, during the 15th and the 16th century. Of course, Constantinople is conquered in 1453 uh, and, uh, by Mehmed. And, um, and then the, the, the Ottoman Empire continues to spread uh, her, her control, not only over the Mediterranean Sea, but the the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf as well. And uh, her galleys, the Ottoman Empire's galleys, make frequent raids on the seaboard, on the, on, on the seacoast towns of Greece and Italy, even as far as uh, Spain. And, um, and, and, and they raid these towns and uh, young men, uh, boys are captured to row the the galleys of the Ottoman Empire. And, uh, and then, of course, there's a contest here for, um, you know, commercial control, political control of the, uh, of the Mediterranean Sea as well. But the, but the, but the man who uh, is, is at the helm of the Ottoman Empire in the middle of the 16th century is Suleiman the Magnificent. And the Ottoman Empire has grown to its zenith. And he has his eyes on uh, on Italy. You know, first he invades Malta in 1565, 
Um, then he makes a go for the gates. Of, he fails at Malta after uh, a long siege there. He makes a go for Vienna. He's unsuccessful there. He's turned away by courageous uh, Hungarians. And, um, and then he dies on that campaign. And he's succeeded by his son, a man named Selim II, who's not the warrior that his father was. He's actually a bit of a deviant. Actually, he's a considerable deviant. And, uh, but he knows that if he doesn't, he doesn't have some successful military action that the empire that his father has left him will face eclipse. So he decides to invade the Venetian-held Cyprus. Uh, the, the legend goes that Cyprus was the source of his favorite vintage. But in any case, uh, he, he decides to invade Cyprus. He figures the Greek Orthodox there are not going to really put up a lot of resistance. They're unhappy living under the uh, exacting rule of their Venetian Roman Catholic masters. Um, but that's really where this war, you know, goes hot, if you will. Um, and there's a battle for Cyprus starting in 1571 uh, that goes on for, for some time. Uh, and Cyprus eventually falls. And it, and it is at this time, as Cyprus is falling to the Ottomans, that the rest of Europe, Italy, Spain, the, whole, the Holy Le uh, the, 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 the Papal States, uh, the Tuscan Republics, Venice, Sicily. You know, we tend to think of Italy as a monolith now, right? But it, it, Italy wasn't united until the middle of the 19th century. So all these wow. independent city-states, the Papal States, Spain, they, they realize that if they don't come together, that, the, uh, that, 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 that Italy and Spain eventually will fall to the Ottoman Empire. But they, they, can't, they can't get their act together. There's so much quarreling. And so God sends one of history's greatest popes, a man named uh, Michael Ghislieri, a Dominican friar, uh, whom we know as Pope Pius V, Pio Quinto, Pope St. Pius V. He's the reason popes wear white today, the first oh, okay. Dominican pope. Very interesting. And, yeah. And, uh, and he, he, assemb he gets... He gets the parts talking to each other to assemble a fleet sufficient to take on the Turk. So interesting. So, the, so now I can the, go. The, I, I can keep going. <laughs> but the plot is set. We've got the stages set. Um, yeah. There's a threat now. Um, we could lose uh, uh, our, our Christian identity at this point. Um, you, you've got basically when you're talking about the Ottoman Empire, we are talking uh, uh, many those following the Islamic faith. We sure. say anti Christian, the anti the Christian message. They want to annihilate um, the Christians, if you like, and dominate. You know, it's interesting, Charbel, because um, the Turks are descendants of uh, tribes who, I don't know, in the ninth, tenth century, uh, kind of say say eight through the tenth century, kind of migrate down from the steppes into. Anatolia, and uh, and and in so doing, I Islam has come up across North Africa, but also up from the Arabian Peninsula into what we would call the Holy Land or the Levant, and um, and so the Turks are converts, uh, and mm. you know we've all encountered Catholic converts, right? They have a kind of zeal about them. They're almost better at being Catholics than cradle Catholics like me, you know, who just who got it from the beginning. We were blessed by in, in that way. But the convert had to come to it um, by some uh, willed experience in some regard uh, or some great moment. And it's kind of the same way with the Turks. So in many ways, the Turks are they're more zealous Muslims uh, than even the Arabs are. And so they really are driven by. The, the, these principles that this is a faith that is spread uh, by the sword and, and, and that death in the service of this faith um, is rewarded with, you know, an eternity of carnal pleasure. So, uh, so, 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 
So the Turks are better Muslims in many ways than, than the Arabs are. Uh, and, and, and they do, they, with, with great fire, they, they, they take the spread of this faith out into the Mediterranean world. And think of it this way. You know, uh, the Hagia Sophia fell in 1453 um, with the fall of Constantinople and it became a mosque. In fact, it's a mosque again now, right? And, uh, and St. Peter's Basilica is under construction right now in the second half of the 16th century. So there's time in the eye of Selim II, in the mind of Selim II, we can still take this and put a crescent on the top of that dome, right? Michelangelo's dome. So um, it's a very near run thing. People, you know, there had been invasions or Tronto uh, at the end of the 15th century uh, where, uh, th- where, where Turkish ships had come and invaded the town of Otranto and what's the number, something like 800 martyred or something like that. So, uh, so this is a very, very real threat. It's not something we tell in the retelling of the story to give a dramatic effect. The, the, the threat to Italy is real. And here we go. Um, the Pope now steps in wanting to unite uh, the fellow countries and, and tell us uh, what now facing this potentially annihilation. Um, what does the Pope do? What What's the response? What What is what What do we do in response to this? Yeah. So So the Holy Father uh, he 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 reaches out to the King of Spain. Uh, he reaches out to the King of France unsuccessfully. Uh, he reaches out to Venice, um, and of course Sicily and Naples would would have been part of Spain at this time. He reaches out to the Tuscan republics, especially Pisa, right? And he reaches out to Genoa, mm-hmm. you know, Genoa, of course, where Christopher Columbus um, came from, right? All these are independent republics at the time. And he, and he says, we have to come together. And on, uh, on March 7th, uh, which is the Feast of Thomas Aquinas in the old calendar, he assembles all of these great Dominican, right? He assembles all of these players, the representatives of these great states and kingdoms at the, uh, at, at the Dominican church in Rome, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, uh, which is very close to the Pantheon. Um, it's where Catherine of Siena is buried under the high altar. Uh, and, and, and there's a little altar commemorating the founding of the Holy League. And he, he, he gathers all the players and he says, we have to form an armada capable of taking on the Turk in a pitched battle. But he's not completely successful because Venice decides not to join. Now, like I said in the beginning, Venice is currently at war with the Ottoman Empire over the island of Cyprus. But Venice, you know, they're, they're, they're like the very early capitalists, you know, they're they're always kind of, they think, all right, well, maybe we would lose Cyprus, but if we lost our fleet in an all-out battle with the Ottomans, well, then our economy would be ruined. Well, in the eyes of the Pope, the Venetians have kind of have sold their birthright as Christians for a mess of pottage. So he sets these preachers like... Uh, the, 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 the Francisco Borgia, who's now the superior general of the Jesuits and other fiery preachers to start preaching sermons against Islam throughout Christendom. And finally, the attention of enough of the people of Christendom and enough Venetians, they get their priorities focused. And Venice says, okay, we'll design, the, we'll, we'll join the Holy League. But even at this point, they can't agree Who's going to run the thing? Venice wants to run it. And they have a real claim to it because they are the great seaborne nation. But so is Genoa, of course. And the king of Spain, Philip II, he's giving tons of money to this project. So he has a claim to it. The Pope, and the story goes, he's saying mass, right? The legend, who knows? I believe the story. And he's reading the last gospel. A man... Uh, was sent by God, his name was John, right? 
And so he thinks, Don John of Austria, 24-year-old illegitimate son of Charles V, the emperor, uh, and half-brother to the king of Spain. And he, 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 he tells Philip, I'm going to use your half-brother. He's going to be the admiral of the fleet. And the Pope sends a message to Don John, and he says, the Turks, swollen by their victories, will, wi will wish to take on our fleet. Uh, and God, I have the pri pious presentiment, will give us victory. Charles V gave you life. I will give you honor and greatness. Go and seek them out. So Don John takes charge of his fleet at the port of Messina. Where's Messina? It's right where the toe of Italy meets Sicily. And he, he assembles Venetians, Genovese, Spaniards, Sicilians, Pisans, Knights of Malta. They all bring their ships and they form this armada of about 300 galleys and they prepare for battle. Wow. Wow. So here we go. I mean, um, the threat was real. They were about to face, they had to do something. They had to respond. And uh, now what was, what was going on now? I, I'm, I'm keen to, to hear, we got to talk about how the battle went, <laughs> but uh, the secret weapon as well that, that the church had um, quite, quite remarkable, but uh, that's fantastic. We haven't seen this unity before for some time. Um, what happens next? As, well, as you know, so, so Don John is a remarkable man. Um, and like I say, he's 24 years old. He's really, a, he's a kid. And he, he, he is required, he's a man of extraordinary self-confidence. He's required to take command of his fleet. And all of his captains are men of greater uh, seafaring and warfighting experience than he has, but he is a man of great confidence and uh, very calm leadership. He's very self-possessed. He, he's quite a good looking fellow. He has he's quite a ladies man. He, he has a, a reputation throughout uh, all of Europe as a great dancer and also as a great swordsman. And he speaks several languages. He has a pet lion club, lion cub and a, pet marmoset and um, he's just, you know, sort of one of these larger than life figures, but he, he has a great devotion to our lady and he understands that the battle that his fleet is going to be engaged in is one that is as much spiritual as it is physical or political, if you will. So the first thing he requires of his uh, fleet of his sailors and his soldiers, when they assemble at Messina, he says, we're all going to make a three-day fast in preparation for this battle. And uh, it seems sort of counterintuitive. You know, you want, you think you'd want to carve up or whatever, right? <laughs> and he says, we're all going to make a three-day fast. We're going to pray and fast. And by the way, no women aboard the galleys. And of course, what sort of women are coming aboard galley ships anyway? You know, right? Ladies of the evening. And he says, there will be no more of this behavior. Everyone's going to confess. We're all going to assist at the holy sacrifice of the mass. So he prepares them spiritually. And then they begin to make their way ac across the Adriatic to the west coast of Greece. Now, imagine Greece. You've got the mainland Greece. And then you've got the Peloponnese. And then you've got that body of water that divides mainland Greece and the Peloponnese. Today, we call it the Gulf of Patras or the Bay of Corinth. Um, in that day, it was called the Bay of Lepanto because there was a little town about a third of the way in uh, on the northern side called Nafpaktos, which was how the Greeks said that that's what the name of the town was. It was owned by Venice at the time, and they called it Lepanto. So Nafpaktos, Lepanto. Anyway, so that's how the bay got its name. The, the Turks have assembled their fleet, and they're... Uh, in the bay, they're harboring there in Nafpaktos, and they're preparing uh, to come out and meet the Christians whom they know have come over. Uh, the, the, the Christians come over to Corfu, and they start sailing down or rowing down the 
west coast of Greece, of the Greek peninsula. And on the eve of the battle, Don John has assembled all of his admirals on his flagship, Real. And he's got, you know, Sebastian Veniero there, who's 75 years old. And he, he, he and uh, uh, Marco Antonio Colonna, who, who commands the galleys of the Papal States, and um, uh, the Marquis of Santa Cruz, uh, Don Alvaro de Bazan, who's Spain's greatest naval captain. And, uh, and, and he has these, these really great men, great sailors, you know, admirals in, in, in his cabin. He's reviewing once more the order of battle on the eve of the battle. And the Genovese commander, John Andrea Doria, who is a great sailor to be sure, but he's also a ship owner, you know? So he's, a, he's gonna hedge a little bit. And he says, your grace, there's still time to avoid a pitched battle. And Don John looks at these guys, they're all older than he, than he is and greater sailors than he is. And he says, gentlemen, the time for counsel has passed. Now is the time for war. And it was. And so they start to row down the west coast of Greece and turn into the Bay of Corinth there, the Gulf of Lepanto, the Bay of Lepanto. And they're rowing against the wind. Uh, and the, the men who rowed the ships of the Holy League, you know, they're all, they're probably serving some kind of a criminal sentence, right? So maybe thieves or debtors or, Maybe some guy who killed his wife, lo lover, his wife's lover, or something like that. Don John promises them all freedom, and he issues them all a weapon. And he says to them, "You know, if you fight bravely, right, then you will earn your freedom." And then he issues everyone in his fleet a weapon more powerful than anything the Turks can muster—a right? rosary. So the the sailors and the soldiers and the rowers and the crews of the Holy League prepare themselves for the battle by falling on their knees and praying the rosary. And up and down the Italian peninsula at the behest of Pius V, the faithful have packed the churches and they're telling their beads. And up and down the decks of the galleys of the Holy League, priests of the great orders are, you know, are holding crucifixes aloft, exhorting the men to be brave and hearing final confession. And so they're, 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 they're having to pull against the wind and bearing down from them. They can see, you know, a mile or half a mile away, the Turks, their armada stretched from shore to shore, shaped like a crescent, right? Coming against them in three squadrons, coming against them. And the Holy League shaped like a cross, right? One squadron here, one in the middle, one underneath, and then one behind the reserve squadron. And then in front, the galleuses of Venice, the larger, uh, vessels. Anyway, they're rowing against the wind. They're praying the rosary. And about a mile, a half a mile before the fleets engage, Our Lady, her immaculate heart of flame, is listening in heaven, and the wind shifts 180 degrees. And so now, this, the, 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 the sails of the Holy League are filled with the divine breath, driving them into battle. The rowers of the Turkish vessels, Christians, they're whipped up from under their benches and they're having to pull against the wind. Now, it's important to understand that in a, in a galley conflict like this, they wouldn't engage under full sail. You would strike sail before engaging because you want the maneuverability that the oars will give you. A galley is a kind of a hybrid vessel. It is a hybrid. Mm. It's a rowing vessel and a sailing vessel. Very difficult to pilot. And, uh, and so, but the fact that the the, uh, the rowers are able to arrive, rested, right? It, it's key to the success in the battle, right? So our lady, gives, our lady gives the Holy League an advantage there before the battle. And then of course the, the fleets engage and it's one of the great conflicts of, of, uh, of naval history there. Wow. We could talk uh, about, you know, I don't, I'm going on and on. I, I don't no, know. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. There's so many details and I, I think people have to, I guess, look at the three CD set or uh, um, really study this history. But um, the, the key elements here that there's, there's this strong element of faith and it certainly is, uh, if you like, I mean, it was a battle of the religions too. I mean, Islam versus Christianity. It was a clear, clear cut um, 
divide. And uh, that's so interesting. If you had a Google uh, or a satellite, I could just imagine. Uh, are you saying the way the um, the Turks were were formed? It was in the form of a crescent, and then yes, you, from the, from the bird's eye view, we had the formed in a cross. Was that deliberate, or was that just how it worked out? <laughs> I would say it's it, I would say it's deliberate in the providential plan. Yeah, <laughs> I just think it's the made the imagery there, the cross and the crescent, um, and so they they prepare themselves with prayer, fasting, the, the sacrifice of the mass, and now the rosary, which is quite beautiful, and the weapon they call the weapon. I love that. Now, now the battle happens. What? How big are we talking about? Uh, we were the Christians were outnumbered, weren't they? Were they still? Um, I, I, well, you know, some people say that, it, it, but but the, but if the, if the Turks had a numerical advantage, it was a slight one. The Turks did have, um, probably did have them a little bit on numbers, though not significantly. But one of the reasons they did is because in the Turkish Armada were a smaller vessel called a galleot, which is a a, a, a very swift, smaller galley that was used by the Barbary Corsairs. So those Corsairs of Northern Africa. Um, and, and those were part, those would have been part of the Turkish Armada. Um, but I would say that they were, they were relatively evenly matched and they were, and they were evenly matched and that they were both really well led. I mean, the Turks understood galley warfare as well. I think mm. it is certainly true that the, um, that the, uh, that the, the Holy League did have a, a gunpowder advantage. On the eve of the battle, we talked about uh, John Andrea Doria trying to see if he could get uh, Don John of Austria from not having a pitch battle. He's unsuccessful there, but he does give Don John a very good piece of advice. He tells Don John, cut the spars off of, of the bows of all the galleys. So imagine a galley, and then at the end of it, there's a spar that comes out like this. Now, galleys have been, had been equipped with spars since the very beginning of galley warfare, going back to ancient history, Salamis. In, 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 in ancient times, like an ancient Greek, or think of Ben-Hur, right? Everybody knows mm -hmm. Ben-Hur. So think of an ancient Greek or Roman galley. There you've got this spar and it's tipped with bronze and it comes under the water line a little bit or at the water line. The object in engagement there would be to ram at the water line, jam a hole and then back up and then leave the wounded vessel to sink. In the 16th century, you've got this telaro kind of poking out from the bow, so well above the waterline, or excuse me, not to Talaro, a spar. And the object there is to come at a glancing blow and tear at this thing called a Talaro, which was the outrigger that supported the weight of the oars. Either way, leaving the galley, um, you know, uh, wounded, right? So, uh, so, but the reason he tells Don John, take those spars off is because the centerline bow cannons now can depress a little bit further and the trajectory of the shot won't be interfered with by that galley spar. You look at a picture of a galley, it makes perfect sense what I'm trying to describe. So anyways, but, but, they, but they engage, there's gun, gun fire to be sure, but very soon the fleets are engaged like this and what we really have is a land battle at sea. And so uh, uh, there, there's boarding, um, grappling and boarding and uh, uh, swords, close range muskets, crossbows. I mean, just imagine all the blood on the deck, you know, limbs kind of quivering on the deck, the sea running red and all of these galleys up against one another uh, fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat. At one point in the battle, um, John Andrea Doria, who commands the southernmost squadron of the Holy League, uh, the interval between Don John's squadron and his gets so large that Yulik Ali, an Algerian commanding the Ottomans comes up into that gap and he envelops from behind Don John. Well, remember I mentioned to you, Don Alvaro de Bazan, the Marquis of Santa Cruz, Spain's greatest captain. There he is in reserve and he's waiting for the moment when he's most needed in the battle. Now he sees Don John has become enveloped. He puts his galley, he puts his squadron in motion. He goes and he rescues the center squadron and Don John and then goes down to aid uh, John Andrea Dora in the third squadron. 
But I mean, the whole, it's hours and hours of this kind of close quarter fighting. But at the end of it, the Christians prevail. And all but 12 or 13 of the Turkish galleys are either captured or sunk. The Christian uh, rowers are set free from their chains, right? And in the aftermath of the battle, you know, we should be very clear. Don John orders all of the pilots and all the Janissaries executed. And why is this? Because a galley is a complicated thing to run. I mean, you can build one in about a day. The Venetians could build one in about a day or two. But to put it to sea and to pilot it takes very skilled seamanship. And Don John just had all of all the galley captains for the Turkish side executed because he knew that if, you know, the, 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 the Turks could put ships to sea again, but without the experts, it would be a long be time back. before they could be operated. Yeah. So, wow. And then it was great feasting and celebrating and giving honor to Our Lady. But you know, the word slowly makes its way back to the Italian peninsula, but by the time it does, the Pope already knew because there he was on the day of the battle. He's at the Dominican church of Santa Sabina on the Aventine Hill. Beautiful paleo-Christian church. Probably my favorite or second favorite church in Rome. And he's look, he's dealing with the cardinals. They're talking about some church business. Who knows what it is? He looks out the window. He looks up in the sky. And Our Lady has favored him with a vision of the victory. And he turns to the cardinals and he says, let us fall on our knees for God has given our fleet a, ga- a great victory. So, so the, the, the faithful are in Italy are already celebrating when the news of the victory gets back there. And Christianity was saved in the region as a result. As, it was. It was. Uh, it was. It would have been, um, yeah, it could have been an Islamic state right through and it could have been completely dominated. People have to realize that. Um, well, and people who don't believe this, I mean, if people who don't believe this, take a look at Greece. I mean, it, Greece is not freed from Ottoman rule until the, until the 19th century, you know? Mm. So um, Greece's war of independence. So Italy's not very far from Greece. It very much could have happened. And, you know, and, and one of the reasons it, it, it well could have happened, and again, I go into this, and we had to kind of gloss over the setting of the political stage, but what is Europe, Christendom is divided now, you know, by the Protestant rebellion, which is several generations old. And France herself, with the Huguenots, for example, is divided by Protestant rebellion. And England, of course, is in full-scale rebellion against the church. And Queen Elizabeth is executing, uh, you know, martyrs of, of the Holy Church, Edmund Campion, for example. And, uh, um, and, and so to think that Europe would unite against the Ottomans, the Queen of England used her spymaster, uh, Walsingham, to, uh, as an ambassador with the Ottomans in her wars with uh, Philip II. Wow. So, and the, and, and, and in, in Calvinist Spain, uh, right, in the low countries there, in the Netherlands, um, the Calvinists, in a sign of solidarity with the Ottomans, would wear a little crescent on their berets. So... Uh, and, you know, kind of makes sense because both Calvinism and Islam are, are religions of a capricious God, you know, an angry, capricious God. So, uh, so what, what do you mean by that? Italy that had fallen? That's a good point. Um, just, well, just quickly, what do you mean yeah, by that? Well, I mean, in, in, in both Islamic and Calvinist theology, we have, a, 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 in, in Calvinist theology, we have a God who um, creates people to damn them. Right. Mm, and, predestination. Uh, and then, of course, yeah, exactly. And then in, 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 in uh, uh, Islamic theology, such as it is, um, it, uh, we, we have a God who, who can change his mind, even if he contradicts himself. Right. So, mm. uh, so again, these are both gods whose behaviors are kind of marked by caprice um, or capriciousness. So anyway, to think that England or France, much less Eastern Europe, you know, would have come to the relief of Italy. Maybe not, or likely not. 
they certainly didn't come to the relief of Malta and they didn't come to the relief of Ziegfeld, right? Uh, wow. Two stories I tell in the longer version there. So it was a very near run thing and Our Lady knew when to step in. And we celebrate mm. it every year, you know, you mentioned the crescents or the croissant. That of course <laughs> is 1683, uh, Battle of Vienna, um, this, uh, September 12th, another great feast of Our Lady, holy name of, uh, uh, holy name of Mary, where Our Lady saves Vienna from Islamic conquest. And there, you know, the eclipse of the Ottoman Empire starts in 1571, but it really, the, 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 the eclipse comes to maturity, if you will, at 1683 with the gates of Vienna. Um, another story we need to talk about. Next time, next time I'm in Australia, we'll, we'll, we'll tell that story. That'll, that'll be very interesting. John Sobieski. Okay. You've got a lot of poles in Australia, don't you, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah. um, they should know that story. Very, very, very interesting. I guess uh, what we've got to take out of this is we are in a, the Christians, as we know it, were divided up in... in very early on with since the reformation and our lady is the one that unites again if you like for battle and this is there's so much symbolism in this and mate before i want to make sure we do i guess we have to do our our bit in the 21st century many people alive today have not experienced war as and 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 have the questions about how can how can we have war and and there's the church does teach that the whole idea of just war and and all of this there's a huge misunderstanding about why the need for war and things like that. This was out of self-defense. It's always out of a way of defending the innocent. And uh, if, if there's a threat, we, are, we, are we obliged to at least protect the innocent? Um, there's a misunderstanding of why we have wars. And can, do, were we able to touch on that just very quickly? Why would, uh, you know, you get this question all the time, loving God, permit war or want war. Why would we go to war? And uh, there is such thing as just war. Um, and in this case, there certainly is. was necessary. To be sure, to be sure. And of course, that tradition uh, precedes Christianity. Uh, Augustine uh, minds uh, Cicero when, he, when he's formulating his just war theory. And then, of course, uh, Aquinas uh, adds uh, some more dimension and precision to the idea. But the church in her wisdom... Uh, begins with the presumption that war is a bad idea mm -hmm. and that there will be a great loss of life uh, and property um, and the great harm will come from it. Uh, so the church presumes against it, you know, and now you have to make the case. But there are times when, of course, and, and, and the details of the just war, anyone can look up in the catechism, but there are times when it's demanded of us, right, to take up arms, yeah, and 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 to defend the innocent, as you say, um, and to defend the church, you know, to defend the truth, materially and spiritually. I mean, one of the things the Ottomans were famous for, and and Muslims generally, were the desecration of churches. I mean, we saw this in the Holy Land, of course, at the time of the Crusades, but uh, also. Um, throughout the uh, ascendancy or, or the, the rise of the Ottoman Empire. So you see churches desecrated, altars befouled, holy water fonts right. befouled, uh, and, um, and sanctuaries and, 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 and statues desecrated and things of this nature. And so, uh, and that kind of desecration, you know, is going on right now here in the United States uh, with uh, this Antifa stuff and... Uh, um, some of this insane diabolical reaction uh, in places like Portland and other, uh, and, uh, and other major cities with rioting. There are Catholic churches that are being desecrated right now, statues of the Virgin that are uh, uh, yeah. being decapitated, for example, desecrated. And then, and Junipro of course, who's very dear to us here in California, st statues of Junipro the great saint who loved the native people of California and brought them baptism, you know. His statue is being desecrated. So that kind of uh, diabolical iconoclasm is underway again right now. Yeah. Very interesting. We're foolish to think that in the modern age, we're kind of too enlightened for all of this. We're not. It's coming again. Yeah, and, and, and great points there because we are seeing before our very eyes 
what we may think of as a, trying to keep the peace among us, we, we tend to push this, this war of ideas and this war of ideas, this identity crisis right now across the globe. And, uh, and now we, we claim tolerance or claim um, innocence or we, we are actually guilty of judging to the point of taking matters in our hands and forcing others to believe what we want to believe. And, and this is where we do have to push back and say, hang on, if we do truly believe in freedom, <laughs> we present the truth as it is, the truth will defend itself. And we all have the right to yes. believe and we need this religious freedom right now. People are seeing it's under attack um, and a huge misunderstanding about where the church, the, the church has never been sort of forceful uh, on, on people's belief. It's always been an invitation. Um, just a comment, I, I guess, where we are today, where's the battle right now? Um, the rosary is still a weapon and there's still a war going on, but but it's, uh, it's a different type of war. <laughs> um, how, how can we now turn to the rosary more than ever today? And, and what's the fight uh, in here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a good it's a it's a good thing that you say, Charbel. One of the distinctions that I make to my staff at Catholic Answers from time to time, um, I say, let's not so much use the rhetoric of culture war. Mm. Though to be sure, there is such a thing, but instead, let's talk about spiritual combat mm. because that really is, and, and you know, as Saint Paul says, in the high places, you know. And, uh, and, and, and so this is, this is where the war is taking place. Um, this is one of the reasons why I love the Chesterton poem that, uh, um, that celebrates and honors this great battle. And I encourage anybody to look up the poem. It's absolutely magnificent. But to Chesterton, it's very clear that the Battle of Lepanto, yes, it was a moment in political history, but it was also a moment in uh salvation history if you will and so it enters into that realm of the spiritual combat and there's that passage in there where mahound or muhammad is in his paradise there and he summons up all of these demons you know because he understands that the battle that they're about to fight with the holy league is is a supernatural one so i think a story like this really helps us focus on that spiritual combat that you're talking about and another thing, Charbel, that you brought up that, that I want to underscore for, for the folks watching, um, especially those of us who work in the vineyard, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, like Perugia and Catholic Answers and, and the many, many apostolates now um, that have, that have uh, flowered in the past uh, generation. It's really important for us to have a spirit of cooperation. You know, we, we, we talk, uh, we, we look at this moment where the Holy League uh, can't come together because of the petty jealousies of the of, of, of the Kingdom of Spain or the Kingdom of Venice or the Kingdom or or, 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 or the uh, Republic of Venice, the Republic of Genoa, right, um, or the Papal States, you know, for that matter, um, and uh, though certainly not in the case of Pius V, who calls them all together and he says, no, 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 we have to set those things aside because we have a common goal. Right. And it's the spread of the gospel. And uh, and so there's so much opportunity for cooperation in the vineyard with all these wonderful. It's such an honor for Catholic Answers, for me and for my staff to cooperate all the way across the Pacific Ocean with uh, with with Perugia. And honor what is a out. joy to hear what one of the, of the really first rate minds you've got. I mean, I'm just a guy who likes to tell stories, but, you know, you've got Ted Shree coming on and Scott Hahn and. These guys really just first-rate scholars, and what what it's so wonderful that you brought all these people together uh, for Our Lady, and this is what she wants because you know Our Lady. You see those images from um, Siena, the Sienese school in the 13th, 14th centuries of Our Lady with her big mantle, you know, where she pulls yes. all of her children under her mantle, and that's what Perugia is doing in her honor there. So well done to you, Charbel. It's all I, I can't help think our lady wanted this and the way it just it just fell into place this whole journey this whole pilgrimage and it really revealed to me the power our lady has I mean when she asks we got to listen and and people need to appreciate yeah we don't worship her she's not god however she certainly point gets us very close to him and and guides us to him and and what a model she is for us and what a true mother she is uh, she really is there um and I, I've been personally amazed. I've gone on a journey myself through this pilgrimage. Just the, the simplicity of this prayer, this rosary, 
yet the way it unites people, and I, I just can't help think we cannot ignore the reality that the rosary doesn't divide, but it unites. Our Lady doesn't divide, yes. she unites. And she united back then in the Battle of Lepanto, and she's uniting us right now. And let's turn to her. And I, and I, I know it's true in your own life, Charbel, in the lives of many people watching, but you know, we think back in our past and the times when we've asked Our Lady for something, mm. uh, when, we're, when we're in desperate need, and she always responds, and always with more. And she's so easy to approach. You know, there's a beautiful line in Charles Peggy, the great French poet who lost his life in the First World War. And, you know, he says, you know, there certainly were times in my life where I, I you know, I didn't feel like I, I, I had the courage to say in Our Father, but I always felt welcome, you know, to say in Our uh, 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 Hail Mary, right? <laughs> and, and, and what a grace that our Lord has made her you know, human, and so she's so accessible to us, you know. That's right. So, yeah, Amen. she's... I want to thank you, uh, Chris, for sharing uh, the Battle of Lepanto, the express version. Um, I'll encourage people again. Yeah. We have in the comments uh, the three CD set if you want to know more in detail. Um, and we've also got coming around the corner on Perusia On Demand, the video as well. So look out for that um, at perusiamedia.com and catholic.com. We've got the website to Catholic Answers as well. And just briefly, we've got only two minutes here before we wrap up. Catholic Answers, um, how do people get to know more about what you're doing? And uh, you know, if, there, if there still is some people out there that don't know what you do, it would be great to uh, really guide them to know more about the work you're involved in. It's a great team you have there. Well, to be, sh to, to be sure, there are, there are people who uh, don't know of our work and, and some of them are wearing collars. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, it, but um, yeah, so Catholic.com, uh, and I don't know if we get more visits or not than the Vatican. But any question that you have about the Catholic faith, you can get you can get an honest answer there. We we teach what the Church teaches, no more, no less, and uh, and and we explain why the Church teaches what she teaches, and what a magnificent patrimony. You know, um, yet uh, over the weekend, uh, the Holy Father came out with this very lengthy and wide-ranging uh, encyclical um, on the Feast of St. Francis. Um, and in some ways, it's kind of unfortunate that it will eclipse uh, a shorter apostolic letter that came out five days before on St. Jerome. And mm. I encourage people to read the one on St. Jerome. It's, it won't take you very long. It's just a few pages. But at the end there, he talks about our patrimony as Christians. And he said, there is no greater patrimony than the one that we possess as Christians. And he especially points to young people. And he says, you know, we're illiterate of our faith now. We are illiterate of our faith. So, uh, you know, we, we, we're unable even to talk about it. Um, so he, so he, he, he encourages young people to, un, to come to know their patrimony, to come to know their faith. And so this is what Catholic Answers wants. We want everyone to know his or her, her faith better. Uh, Christianity is a religion for grown-ups. You know, we're, we're brought into it as children, but we're not meant to arrest our intellectual development because it's such a very rich faith. So come to Catholic.com. Uh, uh, go to, put, put the Catholic Answers live uh, app on your phone. Listen to the radio show every day. It's a painless right. way to right it's a painless way to get to know your faith better tune into the podcast catholic answers focus council of trends and you, you get in the habit of doing this my friends and and pretty soon you'll become an apologist and we need them right we need more yes. guys like charbel there there used to be hundreds of apologists in australia now i think we can count on maybe one hand how many yeah, there are we, really we good need ones. many more now <laughs> yeah not a lot so we need people who can defend the faith, people who can stand there on the street corner, right? Or on the chat room or whatever it is and, and explain in an irenic and charitable way. No, this is the truth and it's beautiful. This Love is why it. it makes sense. All free, by the way, the, 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 the Catholic Answers Amen. Live, Catholic Focus, Catholic Answers Focus. You've got the website, catholic.com. Any question you like, just pop it in. It's just brilliant and you can trust it. Take it to the bank teaching the church, church's Amen. teaching. There's no opinion there. It's just straight up church teaching. 
Um, and then if you want to go even deeper, Facebook. you've got all the social media platforms covered. Um, right. And then there's, if you want to go deeper again, you've also got School of Apologetics, if those who really want to take it serious, right. um, that's on the website as well. Uh, and then you've got press as well School? as uh, materials. Yep. Schoolofapologetics.com. I mean, uh, we've got uh, Jimmy Aiken's got a full-length course on there, um, Introduction to Apologetics. Trent Horn has a full-length course on the moral life. Uh, I just recorded one on the Inquisition, and I'm about to do one on Galileo. Fantastic. Tim Staples just finished one on ecclesiology. Uh, but these are, these are nice little 12-minute, 15-minute segments. You go over this enough times and you will become a very good apologist. We want to make more apologists. Yes, brilliant. Well, let's raise the leaders of the future. We need it uh, so desperately today. Um, Amen. So go to catholic.com, know more about your faith. Please do that and, and spread that among your family and friends and take full advantage of all the free resources there and uh, and pray for this uh, wonderful apostolate. I want to thank you so much, uh, Chris Check, President of Catholic Answers. Happy Feast of the Holy Thanks. Rosary. And to you, my brother, and and uh, I, you're in my prayers until the next time we're we're in, you know incarnate together. I can't wait. That's for that. right. Oh, please, God, we'll 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 on schedule to come this year, but uh, yeah, due to the right. COVID nineteen, uh, next right. time, well, hopefully next year, we could come out and uh, and visit the studios there and and, and everyone, and then have you that back down under. Yeah, I can't wait to come back. Thank you so much. Well, shall we um just shall we finish with a hail Mary um as we go off air here and um and remember our lady of the rosary's feast right let's pray the prayer that unites everyone um right number the father and the son the holy spirit amen hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen our lady of the most holy rosary pray for us and the father and the son the holy spirit amen 